Good evening, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Welcome to another episode of Retail Coffee Break. I am your host, Nick McHenry. So what's going on in the world now? Uh, Last week was Friday the 13th. Hope you got into, well, I'm not exactly sure what you get into on Friday the 13th, but hope there was no witchery or black hats or or any of that stuff. But this episode, I'm going to do something a little different and actually re-air a conversation that I had on another podcast, Retail Revolution, that's hosted by Christopher Lacey of Parsons. We just had a really, really good conversation about what's going on in the retail landscape, how you can build better personal relationships with your customers, how you can connect with them and and how you can basically navigate through everything that's going on by giving increasingly better customer service. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of my conversation on the Retail Revolution podcast. I had an absolute blast. Here we go. Retail Revolution, a unique podcast that features in-depth conversations with guest experts in omni-channel retailing with myriad perspectives, technology, consumer engagement, data analytics, merchandising, and more. We pay special attention to current socio-political issues and challenges and their implications on fashion retail, as well as opportunities to innovate and rethink retail's future. Visit RetailRevolutionPodcast.com for more information, including full transcripts, and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Retail Revolution Podcast. Retail Revolution is produced by Joshua Williams and hosted by Christopher Lacey. Both are assistant professors in the Fashion Management Graduate Program at Parsons School of Design. Welcome to Retail Revolution Podcast. I'm Christopher Lacey, and today I have with me an industry professional who has worked in wholesale for brands like Bolioli. Giorgio Armani, and Philip Plein. Nick McHenry is now CEO and co-founder of OneShop, a startup dedicated to working with retailers and frontline employees to revolutionize the brick-and-mortar retail experience. Nick, welcome to Retail Revolution. Thanks for having me, Chris. I feel like this has been a long time coming because you actually have been a supporter of us. Thank you so much since like episode one. (laughs) I love the podcast. The podcast is great. (laughs) And I listen to yours. We'll talk about that later as well. So Nick, you have a great story. You and I are quite similar and Mm -hmm. that's why I'm excited to have you on today. So can you tell our listeners about you? Yeah, absolutely. So my background in fashion and retail is, I think like most people, unique. I think everyone got into retail, maybe accidentally or purposely, but everyone has sort of a unique background. So I would say I fall in the accidental category. As a teenager, I didn't really know anything about retail. My first job was actually in retail, but that was just because it was the only job I could get. I was a door greeter at PacSun, just basically stood there and, and said, hey, to everyone that walked in, which was amazing. I was like, oh man, I'm getting paid to just like say, hey, what's up? How's your day going? But I actually wanted to be a musician as a teenager. I was a full-time touring musician at the end of my teens. Not successfully, but I did tour the country full-time. And at the time, it was kind of the MySpace era. And with that, as a musician in the MySpace era, like 50% of your job was playing music and 50% of it was putting the show on. So there was a lot of like photo shoots and shopping and stuff tied to that. And when that all ended, 
I had no idea what was next for me. So I, by default, went back to school and kind of just stumbled into fashion retail from there. And I was like, man, I had no idea what this thing was. I did not know anything about it. But when I got into it, it immediately felt right. I moved to New York, got an internship in PR at the time, actually, because the first thing I thought, I like marketing for my band. PR seems cool. Fashion seems cool. When I got into it, I realized it was the thing I had been looking for my entire life. It was just this niche community of people that loved customer service and loved the shopping experience. And the whole industry itself just like took me over. So I spent basically my early 20s kind of navigating. I did school full-time and worked full-time. Had a ton of internships across some great companies. Eventually transitioned into wholesale, where I spent the majority of my career, worked for some of the brands you mentioned. Had a great time doing it. Got to spend a ton of time in a lot of great retailers. Traveled the country, traveled some of the world. And then uh, last year started my company, One Shop, where we exist today. The thing about being someone who was in retail or wholesale you kind of never think that you're going to start your own company. I know I didn't. I had like a thing where I'm like, I should do my own thing. <laughs> but now, you know, we're both in this spot where we've started our own gig. Yeah. You are full on at One Shop. And I'd love for you to talk about what One Shop does, your thought process to even wanting to start One Shop. Yeah. So One Shop, just for anyone who doesn't know, is that we're a clienteling software platform built specifically for fashion retail to conduct personalized communication at scale. So just taking the normal clienteling kind of day-to-day that people have done forever in retail and using tech to fuel that. I actually would say the opposite. I always kind of did know I was going to start a company. My parents are entrepreneurs. They've been entrepreneurs since the 80s. They actually had a ballroom dance business that I basically grew up in. I think my parents joke that day one, I went from the hospital. My mom took no days off and I was at their business the next day. So I was sort of always (laughs) surrounded by it. I always kind of knew I would. And for people that have worked with me in the corporate world, I think they can attest, like nobody's surprised that I went out and started my own company because I was always kind of known inside my companies as the idea guy, the guy who would take kind of big corporate red tape and try to navigate through it in any way that I could, which is like, what can I do to innovate within the organization? So I just did different things across the companies that I think my team members would attest was just like non-traditional in the wholesale industry, let's say. So I always had an eye for things. That's kind of how the company started. I don't think most companies start with like this light bulb moment where you're just like, oh my God, this is the idea. This is what I need to do. This is what needs to happen. I think that's kind of a fallacy and people who do have that, it's usually more complex than that. So I would say that this company, One Shop, was basically 10 years in the making. I never knew I was making it until the very end. There was a definitive moment. I know this kind of sits close to home with you. It was actually last fall during the Barney's closure that really affected me at a deep emotional level. We were already working on one shop at the time, but we didn't exactly know. We were kind of iterating our way into it. We knew we wanted to help retailers with their sales and something with that. But I did a lot of reflecting while that was happening, kind of questioning what could have prevented this or what caused this or what's happening right now in retail. And I connected the dots when I was talking to people in the industry like yourself and figuring out all of that stuff where I traveled the stores about 30% of the time when I was in wholesale. And every store, anyone who wholesale knows, you kind of have this like rhythm of what questions you ask the people on the floor when you get there. What's selling? How's business? How's whatever? You kind of just create small talk around the business. And for probably the last five years, I've been getting consistently, not negative responses, but challenge responses. Ooh, business is challenging because of the rise of e-commerce. Customers are coming in less. They're coming into the store less often. My customer who used to buy X dollars is now buying Y dollars. And the one thing amidst all of that, though, that reigns supreme, it's like, well, what is working? 
And the consistent answer I always got was clienteling or some nature of it. It's my relationships with my customers. How deep on an emotional level can I understand them and fulfill their needs? And then the second step to that was, okay, what's out there right now? And I have literally a notebook filled with these things about ways that people hack together their clienteling right now, from post-it notes to a physical black book to a little bit more technical like Apple notes or reminders in your calendar to follow up with people. I just saw this opening and that's kind of where we slid in and wanted to help facilitate specifically fashion retail with this practice. As you've done this now and, and you're engaging with retailers through one shop, what is the change that you're seeing between frontline employees now in stores and customers, especially, you know, we're reopening things back up after COVID-19. So there definitely is a different psychology that's occurring. Yeah, I think that with this whole thing called COVID-19, a lot's been changed. And I don't think it's a secret in the industry that basically innovation and the industry has been pulled forward. Some people say 10 years, some people say five years, but it's been pulled forward a lot. I think one of those trends that's been pulled forward is your frontline employees are what the customer relates to. Yes, they might relate to your brand as a store, but they relate to the person behind the cash wrap that they interact with when they go to the store. And because of what's happening with COVID-19, I think it's actually less about purely selling right now. Okay, you come in, what kind of pair of shoes can I get you? I think it's shifted now to a much deeper relational basis of how are you doing? Are you safe? Is your family healthy? How are things going with work? And then after that, we just happen to talk about what shoes you're looking to buy today. I think that's shifted a lot in the last six months. Yeah. One of the things that I feel a lot of brands don't get is this relationship that's been established between an associate and whomever they work with is extremely important. And so this idea of not understanding kind of the stress that the associates are also engaged with, like on their own level, and then the stress that the customer is also feeling, what is that experience like when now they're together in this space? And obviously the customer really does care if they're walking into the store they want to see their associate probably because they know they can just order it online. We know we can all call our preferred selling associate and have them send it. But right. for us to walk in, it means something else. And we can't negate, we can't kind of like gloss over that. Like the associate population doesn't matter in that way, which means it's changed the way clienteling looks also. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But when you look at it as your organization now, How do you feel like it's compared to what we've been used to seeing when it comes to clienteling? I think you touched on a lot of interesting points right there. And the one being how the organization treats the relationship between the customer and the salesperson and the associate. As you go higher in luxury, this gets a little bit more loose. You know, if you go to the very luxury stores on Fifth Avenue, they understand their top salesperson kind of like don't own their customer, but they have a very strong relationship with their top customers. That as you go down market, it starts to loosen a little bit. And the reality is stores are going to need to adapt and allow their salespeople to own that relationship more and more in the sense of when I go into a store traditionally in the clienteling arena, the normal message that I get if I buy something in a store is not from the person who helped me. The normal messaging that I get is a corporate communication. If I buy something in a store, technology as a whole has been set up to communicate from the store to me. Thank you for shopping. Here's another promo for what will get you to shop next time. And I think where the world is moving is to really cherish that relationship that just happened on the floor between the salesperson and the customer and allow the salesperson to personally communicate with that person themselves, maybe in addition or in lieu of the corporate communication. So to say, hey, Chris, thank you so much for coming into the store today. It was awesome helping you. I really loved hearing about 
whatever you did last weekend. I think at scale, technology is going to continue to exist to fuel that as opposed to just email automations and at risk of saying something controversial or whatnot, boring corporate communications. Well, it is. And, you know, I've thought that for years working in luxury retail side for so long and that idea of clientele. I'll never forget. It was actually in 2000. I was working for Hugo Boss. And at that time, Hugo Boss was owned by Harry Rosen, a company based out of Canada. And they had done a research in 2000 that showed that clients, when they heard directly from the associate that they had worked with, within 30 days after that initial purchase, it prompted them to go back in and shop again. Mm -hmm. That still holds true today. Granted, we move at a faster pace. So like when I was building out clienteling and training and development programs, it was like, let's shorten that. Let's see what that looks like with the associate reaching out. But we saw multiple times that people shopped again when it came directly from the associate and not from the company to the point where I was like, we don't need to send these anymore. (laughs) We don't ever (laughs) need to send an automated email. Like just stop. We could take this money and we could take this time and put it into something else to make it easier for the associates to reach out. Which brings me to, you brought up a great point. Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, Rodeo Drive, Michigan Avenue, all of the great avenues, the streets, the luxury spots, even multi-vendor stores. Associates know their top clients. They know that, well, that's how it is. One of the things for me was getting associates to look at their developing client, the ones that weren't at the top, but how do we get past your top 25? Are there technologies out there today that can help with this, because this is going to be extremely important because the true luxury consumer, they're not going to stop shopping, right? They aren't. Mm -hmm. But we do have to talk about this aspirational client that may not be getting connected to just because they get lost in the weeds and the associates don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that we can do this so that we can get the desired results that brands want and gain this business back? Yeah. I mean, I think you just hit on a super, super critical point to what's happening right now. To answer your question in terms of what technologies can help fuel this at the store level for all these streets you mentioned, of course, OneShop is set up to do exactly this. But really, it's, it's not just us. Traditionally in retail, the number one point of customer data has always been the point of sale. And that's one of the things I think the industry is lagging on versus other industries is the point of sale is still the dominant cash for all of this information and data they're getting from customers. The problem with POS is that POSs are really great at gathering the data, but they're really not great at allowing you to do anything with it. Yes, you can pull reports in all the POSs, but it's so manual and so time consuming and so complicated that it's not as effective as the technologies in other industries that interprets the data for you and then gives you the data you need to see, which is a lot of the things that we offer at OneShop. So everything that we're seeing on the data side is exactly what you're saying. Every salesperson, no matter if you're a $3 million book, if you sell $100,000, there's a drop-off point where you no longer communicate with your customers at all. Maybe that's your 11th customer because all your business is in your top 10 customers. It might be your 25th customer. But the way that we say it at our company is we say that we're not just in the game of facilitating, okay, how do we continue to cater to our top, top customers? We're also in the business of moving customers to clients, to friends. So moving them up that cycle from one-time shoppers that just happen to buy or stop in your store to buy one thing to people who shop multiple times to people that you could literally invite over for dinner and it would be totally normal. And we sort of base our thesis around that, around Dunbar's number, if you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for those of you who don't know, it's basically 150, which is basically the amount of human personal connections that any human being can retain at one time. So you basically have this allocated amount of brain space for personal relationships that you can maintain. And that's about 150. 
Most salespeople, especially in the luxury arena, don't even get close to that. We see a lot lower numbers in terms of their top 25 customers. That's all they focus on. And I think this comes to using technologies like ours to really show them that it is possible to get your 50th customer to become your 20th best customer in a very short amount of time. An old boss of mine, uh, and I've kind of stuck with me for a long time, says, when you're on the retail floor, every customer's like a lottery ticket. You have no idea what they hold coming into the door, but until you scratch away the surface and dig deeper into that client, you don't know their true potential to your business as a customer. Especially customers that have big books, sometimes lose a little bit of sight of that because they're comfortable with their core client, that until those clients start to fade away and buy less product, that's kind of their oh shit moment to be like, oh man, I need to like actually start to bring more customers into my core client mm-hmm. book. So I think it's really about showing them that it is possible to convert one-time shoppers. And we see this all the time, this kind of wow moment when they send one text to someone who bought a $50 shirt and I'll get texts all the time saying, hey, I sent a text to this guy or girl. And then they came in next weekend and bought $3,000 in product. So I think A, giving them the technology to show that it is possible to do this. And then B, on a training side, just you know, continuing from the managerial side to work on our sales associates that this is the way they should be running their business. Yeah, I think from the training side, you brought up something that's great. From a manager perspective, when you're training your associates, and I would say you've probably seen this too, we hold on to information or there's this idea like we don't want to share all the information with the associate population. (laughs) And I wanted to rail against that. I was like, I want to tell them everything. They need to understand this is how much this one interaction can gain you or how much you lose by not doing it and helping them understand KPIs. When we started talking to associates about conversion, you know, those daily reports that would come out and said, it's like, this was our conversion and this was this, you know, like really getting them into what the business means makes a complete difference, right? Yep. But it also makes a difference in customer engagement, not just from the clienteling side, but you've been going into stores, you were going into them prior to COVID-19. Now you're going into them afterwards. Mm-hmm. And has the formula for meaningful customer engagement changed at all? Or is it pretty much the same? Do you still feel as it was before? So I'm going to say that the formula has not changed that much. But what it has changed is it has made what I'm going to call people's poor clienteling practices before COVID no longer work post-COVID. What I mean by that is poor clienteling practices, in my opinion, pre-COVID was being 90% sales driven in your communications. We have a new trunk show. We have a new product. Come buy my stuff. And just continuing to hammer your clients with that kind of information. In COVID, it's no longer okay to do that because the environment's uncertain. You have no idea what the customer's been going through, what's going on in their lives or whatnot. So it's been this kind of forcing feature to start to balance your communication more from, yes, we are a business and we are trying to, you know, obviously sell you things, but we also want to understand on a personal level what's going on in your life. So I think it's kind of been, you have to now at a store level, be more cognizant. The first thing people go when they walk into a store now is not, hey, what can I help you find? It's, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, that's the thing about just the initial contact, right? Mm-hmm. Is we know this, like in every store, you've got like the group of associates who work the door. Yep. You couldn't get them to clientele. They'd be yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> they're like, I'm going to work the door. Yeah. Your point, it's like, you can't work the door. There's no one to work yep. on the door anymore, <laughs> right? Yep. I want to ask you, do you find that when you're looking at different businesses, because you're dealing with businesses from luxury to fast fashion, Is there anything that the luxury industry can kind of learn from those businesses where they're, you know, a Uniqlo, you know, when it comes to 
how they engage or how they create an experience. By the way, I'm not saying that Uniqlo is the most amazing, but you know, <laughs> I'm just using it as an yeah. example in this yeah, yeah, story. Yeah. Is there something that those associates can kind of pull from? Sometimes I look out and I'm like, is there something that luxury can learn from this other group of retail? So that's a really good question. I'm going to sort of sidestep this a little bit and say what I see more so in terms of what can luxury learn from other types of retail. And I see it more on the size of the business and how corporate the business is. I think that corporate retailers like the luxury on the Fifth Avenue side or the mono brand stores can learn a lot from the smaller boutiques, whether they're selling gifts on your corner store or if they're selling luxury at a very boutique level. The reason being is I find that even with the stores that are doing huge volume at these corporate stores is the smaller retailers, just by nature of them having less customers and less business, by default are a little bit better at creating this environment of home. When you go into their store, it feels like home. Yes, they're buying stuff. Yes, there's commerce happening. But it's almost everybody who walks in there, they know everybody's name. The customers know the owner, they know the salespeople. There's just this like much, much closer knit community. And I think when you're a slightly bigger luxury store and you do have some of these, you know, whales buying huge amounts of, of product and you're, you know, doing millions of dollars in revenue, you sometimes lose sight of the person who just walked in the door and making them feel like home. And the luxury industry has been critiqued about this for a long time. I myself, like I'm a luxury consumer. I can't tell you without naming names how many luxury stores I've walked into. And maybe it's because of how I look. Uh, I like to think I dress pretty well, but maybe it's because of something. I've just been completely ignored. Like maybe someone will come up and say, hey, let me know if you do anything. But I'm completely ignored because I'm not fitting into their ideal persona of what a big ticket customer might look like. So I think that is a mistake that people make on the luxury side. And then vice versa, luxury has always been the service that they do give to their top customers. I think every business can replicate that take the best service you give to your number one best customer, your top 10 customers. And how can you mimic that in a non-luxury store, in a smaller luxury store, in a boutique, um, and just basically equip your team. This is where technology comes back into it to give a higher percentage of your customers that level of service. Yeah. I think to add on to you is for me, I always looked at luxury, like we would train people for years and this was something I challenged and I didn't want to talk about product. Yeah. Because I, I knew that what we did for our product was amazing. And the thing I would always pull from even a smaller store, even a contemporary business was they knew that their product wasn't the best product in the world. Right. That's not what they were selling you on, right? What they were selling you on was a feeling you had when you went in. And so I always wanted to pull that and bring that into the luxury space because it was like, relax, like calm down. It's it's okay. But I also think there's something that goes with that, which is we don't consider the socioeconomic backgrounds of our associate population sometimes either. Mm -hmm. And we will recruit someone from maybe a Banana Republic mm -hmm. into a Gucci. And, and we recruited them because they gave amazing service to us. We mystery shopped them. Mm -hmm. And they did a follow-up. And so now you have this person that's used to selling jeans that are $89. And now you're saying... Yeah, now you're going to sell a $2,000 handbag to someone. And we had to forget, that's a scary moment. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you know, when we talk yeah. about like yeah. engagement and and how to, to make them feel comfortable enough to sell to somebody, I don't know how many of our listeners have sold something that's $5,000 to somebody. I know the first time I did it, I was like, wait, wait, you just have $5,000 <laughs> for this piece yep. of leather? Yep. 
So, you know, that changes the the mentality. And I, I want to ask you, like, how much do you think that's impacting service levels as we continue? Because we're going to see some erosion in the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And will this stress of not having the money of, of what you're selling impact that experience for the associated customer? Well, I mean, I, I would say that the luxury customer in its purest form is is always going to have money. It's not going to be an issue of, oh, can I afford this? If you're buying a $5,000 bag, uh, you're not really going into the store like, oh, can I afford this $5,000 bag or not? The one part of the luxury market I think will be affected is the aspirational customer. The customer who has been saving up or wants to put on their credit card, no matter how you look at it, to buy that Louis Vuitton bag or buy that Gucci bag that they've been you know, seeing on Instagram. That's the customer that I think will be the most affected. But the one thing that I think well, first of all, I think that people need to be more cognizant uh, across the board of people's socioeconomic situation or their economic situation that they're in right now. But the thing that I've seen that's been super interesting across what's happening right now is that it actually is, I think, less about product than we've all thought. Of course, a good product is the core of any business. You need to have a good product for people to come in. But I see day in, day out at the luxury level and, and, and at the non-luxury level, people shopping at a store that don't need anything. And I mean, right now, there's been categories of things with us all being at home that we don't need anymore. Uh, Most of the fashion stuff, nobody really needs right now. But I see every single day, people shopping at stores on the customer side saying, I don't want you to go out of business. I want to shop with my salesperson because I want them to keep a job. I want to shop at this store so they stay open. So I think if the customers are willing to do that, to support our stores and make sure that they're staying open at a brick and mortar level because they're seeing the news about everything that's closing, we deserve to give them the same treatment in repayment. So understanding, okay, where they're at, where can we give them value-driven product versus price-driven product and kind of just serve their needs in, in that way. What is consistency for you when it comes to customer experience? There is this idea of consistency and service that is also personalized. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I have this thing against using the term personalized. I have a whole thing on this. Actually, I'll briefly mention one of the things that drives me crazy about personalized services because people think that it means that you're suggesting items for me yep. view us via some platform that I might like. And I'm like, I'm not going to like it, so don't suggest it. I, that's not personalized service for me. Yeah. So I want to ask you, for you, you know, how do you define consistency and service that is also personalized today? That's a really, really good question. So from consistency side, I'm going to take it in two different ways. One is on the clienteling side. Consistency, in my opinion, starts with having a habit and a regimen for how you're following up with clients. Having a best practice for, okay, I traditionally try to follow up with all my clients that buy something from me this many days later. After that day, I try to follow up this many days after that. I want to be touching base with all my clients this many days. I think that's super important. Otherwise, you just lose sight of things and they fall by the wayside. On the floor, it's really about, in in my opinion, and coming to personalization, is showing up every day and understanding why you're there. For some reason in the fashion industry, I think we've lost sight of what we're actually doing. I think it's easy in fashion, to your point about suggesting things to you about personalization, is that we are the style gurus. We know all the product and about everything. So you're going to come in and we're going to show you what you should be wearing. And really, even clienteling the word itself is retail and fashion's ability to kind of like make this thing sexy or cover up. We're just in sales. And to me, what is sales? Sales is asking questions, 
listening to the customer's needs and trying to best understand what those needs are and fulfill them. So I think personalization in its essence is actually empathy and understanding and less so much about, okay, how can I create a different experience for every single person? If 10 (laughs) people want the exact same thing, because that's their needs, that is personalized service because you understand who they are what they need and what they want out of that experience. I think personalization, I agree with you. It's like, how can I create a million different things at the same time? It's like, that's not personalization. Personalization is being personal to you, understanding what you need and fulfilling that. You put that in perfect words. I just finished reading Retail Pride by Ron Thurston, as I know you did too. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading it, it made me think about when I first got my retail job. I got it because I like talking to people. I was... 17 years old and sauntered into Armani one day and was like, Hey, I want a job. (laughs) I don't know for what reason they were crazy and gave it to me. And there I was working at the mall, but it wasn't so much that I loved clothing. It was that I liked engaging with people and experiencing them in in a different way. And I think we lose sight of that sometimes because the industry is always drive for results, drive for results. You're only as good as yesterday's numbers. Why didn't you beat last year today? You know, it's, it becomes such a thing where we drive the personalization out of it. Yep, Yep. (laughs) exactly. Right. And then we'll do these crazy things and be like, people are saying they're not getting great service. They aren't because we don't talk to our teams about just being people. Hopefully through one shop, businesses and organizations can start to move in that direction. So good luck on that, please, sir. Can you do that? (laughs) That's what we're setting out to do. I mean, that's really our mission and what we do every day to achieve. So our listeners, how can they stay up to date with what you're doing? You have a lot that you've been doing in this industry. So you have a podcast. I want you to talk about it. Yep. Yeah, so we, we have a podcast. Uh, I have a podcast, I should say. It's called Retail Coffee Break. It's meant just to be a casual conversation, kind of like what Chris and I are doing here, just about the industry, everything that's changing. We're in a unique situation where literally, even if you have 50 years of experience in this industry, you don't know what's going on right now because it's never happened before. So uh, we're in this just like unique situation about the future of the industry that we all love. So it's really just about having communications with people that are industry leaders, as well as people who are on the front lines that literally check in every day on a sales floor to service their clients, just about what's going on and their perspective on those things. I'm super active on LinkedIn. You can also find me, Nick McHenry, on LinkedIn. And then it's Nick McHenry literally everywhere on social media and join one shop everywhere on social media. Yay. Nick, this was such a great conversation. I'm glad you were able to have time to chat with us today. And I look forward to to keeping up to date with you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Chris. Take it easy. Yep. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retail Revolution. A very special thank you to everyone who has helped make this podcast possible. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit our show page at retailrevolutionpodcast.com and click on the donate link. Our theme music was composed by Spencer Powell. Be well and stay tuned for our next episode.